When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 141 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the fastest-rising young stars of theater and television, Andrew Rannells. The 38-year-old Nebraskan first burst onto the scene in 2011 as the original Elder Price, opposite Josh Gad's Elder Cunningham, in Broadway's The Book of Mormon, which the New York Times has called, quote, the best musical of this century, close quote, and for which Rannells received a Best Actor in a Musical Tony nomination. Right now, he's a Tony nominee again, in the category of Best Featured Actor in a Musical, for his work in the revival of Falsettos, which ran on the Great White Way from October 2016 through January 2017, and which was filmed and will air on PBS later this year. He's also in serious contention for his first Emmy nomination, for his unforgettable work as Elijah, the gay ex-boyfriend of Lena Dunham's Hannah on HBO's comedy series Girls, which came to an end in April. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel, Reynolds and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how a kid from the Corn Belt first became enamored with theater, what precipitated his move to the Big Apple 20 years ago and what his first years out here were like, how replacement parts in the Broadway shows Hairspray and Jersey Boys ultimately led to his big break in the Book of Mormon, how the Book of Mormon in turn caught the eye of Lena Dunham and led to his casting in Girls, what it's been like being part of the first wave of gay actors who have entered show business open about their sexuality, why, even while spending his days filming girls over the last few years, he has consistently returned to the theater, in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and Hamilton, and most recently in Falsettos, which he dreamed of doing since he was a kid, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Andrew, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. We always begin with just the basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Omaha, Nebraska, and my mother was a stay-at-home mom, and my father owned a advertising specialties business, which is a business that would be completely obsolete now, (laughs) but that's what he did. Right. Now, as I understand it, your first exposure to theater was there was sort of touring stuff that came through town. Is that fair? To yeah, say? I mean, my real introduction to to Broadway was through the Tony Awards. My mother suggested one year that I watch them, and was completely hooked ever I since. I, I was reading about that, and so that happened to be the year of the original falsettos. Uh, falsettos, right? yeah. So it's a very, I feel very fortunate and very overwhelmed by oh, the amazing. the luck yeah. that I I got to do that show all these years later. So yeah. there might be some people who assume, all right, Nebraska, how big of a theater scene could there could there be for a young guy that's into yeah. this however i wonder if you can tell me a little bit about <laughs> norman louise Silver, oh my gosh. earl bates and pab carter tracy and jim becky noble all these people who it sounds like were very integral to your development they were very integral to my development pam carter was my first acting teacher and yeah, there, there was a lot of opportunity for, for me as a kid there. There was a children's theater that was very close to my house growing up, so I spent a lot of time there, most of my Saturdays, taking classes and doing shows. And But Pam was my first acting teacher, and she was, she was tough, man. <laughs> I mean, she did not speak to children like they were children in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. And I think she really instilled in me in a very young age a certain amount of discipline that if you are going to do this, you've got to 
commit to it yeah. and also, you know, just be, uh, be responsible for yourself. I mean, I was, you know, a kid around a lot of adults most of the time. And that's a kind of a strange position to be in as a kid. So she, she taught me at a very young age when to, when to speak up and when right. to not. <laughs> and Norman Louise Filbert were a very su- sweet couple that, my first professional like theater job as a kid was I did a dinner theater production of On Golden Pond. How young were you? I was thirteen. Wow. Yeah. And there, you get paid for this, or how? I got that paid work? for that. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure it was very illegal because of <laughs> child labor laws, but right. I was paid for it. And they were they played Norman and Ethel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they were very sweet to me. They were sort of you know my theatrical grandparents yeah. for many years. And and you're doing vocal stuff as well from an early age? Like it was clear that you were not going to be just in theater, but musical theater? Musical theater took a little bit longer because I was not super confident that I was a singer. Mm -hmm. That confidence sort of came much later in in high school. So I, I never considered myself to be that musical. I loved musicals, but I just didn't. And you know, it's also tricky with, as a boy, like your voice is changing and it takes a while to figure out like, what am I going to sound like? So that came a little bit later, but I, um, definitely always wanted to do musical theater. Some of the, the things that I've tried to read some of the profiles from the early days and also the more recent days. And it seems like one of the things that people have observed is that you, and maybe Chris Colfer and Titus Burgess and a few others are maybe really like the first generation of actors who have not basically had to come out as being gay in this business. Mm-hmm. You came in as being gay yeah. and there was just no question about it. Yeah. And I just wonder, though, in the 90s in Nebraska, was that a tough thing to be open about? Were you always yourself comfortable with that? How did that, if it's not too personal to ask? No, no, no. I mean, I always sort of knew in my heart Mm -hmm. that that was the case. But keep in mind, like in the mid nineties, we were still in the throes of the AIDS crisis. So Mm -hmm. I think that guys my age who sort of discovered their sexuality at that time, there was a a big stigma and a a huge fear about what it would mean to be a gay man at that time. You know, as a kid, I was faced with the reality that that could mean getting sick. Mm -hmm. It could mean dying. So that was, it's a scary time to sort of figure out on top of just the general anxiety of sex for everyone to throw that into the mix. That was not a great introduction. So it was difficult. I mean, I'm extremely lucky that my family like did not bat an eye at my coming out. I think that they knew that, you know, that was the case from a very young age. My love right. of Grease Two and right. things like Solid Gold. How old were you when you when you when I officially out? came yeah. out? Yeah. I had just turned nineteen, 19 so I was okay. right about to leave for college. And I um, told my family to the surprise of no one. But you're right. As I started my career, you know, I worked on Broadway and had been kicking around for quite some time before the Book of Mormon happened, right. before Girls happened. So there was sort of no going back for right. me. I certainly wasn't going to pretend that that was something that wasn't no, the no. case. So, so you're right. I did. You know, there was no coming out. It just sort of was what it was. Yeah. And it's yeah. going to actually be kind of, I'm sure there's generations before that just, I'm sure envy that because what a, what a nice thing to yeah. not have that on your back as something you, is it going to change things if people know? Well, and storytelling in general, I think is an, on television and film and, and is very different now. Yeah. There's different, you know, I get asked a lot if I feel pigeonholed, if I feel like it's limiting to mm-hmm. play gay characters. And to me, it's such a short-sighted question because that implies that there's only one type of gay person. Right. <laughs> right. There's only one way to right. play it, which simply is not the no, case. No, no. So, yeah, that it's it's certainly not limiting if the writing is good. And right. I've been lucky to be a part of some, you know, very exciting and well-written stories. So it's 1997. You have just, as you say, come out to your family. You've just graduated from high school. Move into New York. Decide you're going to be, yeah, pack up and move to New yeah. York. Now, at that point, just what was the future that you imagined in doing that? And and that's a big thing. To, you just came out by yourself? Terrifying, yeah. yeah. I I mean, I came out with the safety of college. Mm-hmm. With, I went to Marymount Manhattan on the Upper East Side, and so I knew that there was going to be some structure to my life, yeah. which was great. Yeah. I didn't have a plan. I didn't really know anybody here. I'm not from a showbiz family. I didn't have, there's no, like, yeah. ins to yeah. anything. 
So I just had to get creative and be scrappy and just sort of, you know, hit the pavement. I think about some of the things that I used to do and it's so crazy to me like that I have a job or that I wasn't arrested. <laughs> well, the thing that I remember somebody telling me to do and it it seems so crazy now is taking your headshot to Broadway theaters and leaving him with the stage manager. Really? And I did that. I remember, you know, just like walking around New York and I would just, I went to the theaters where I thought I could possibly be in a show. Yeah. And I took my headshot and my sad little resume from Nebraska <laughs> and my terrible eight by 10. And I think I was wearing a silk shirt in it. It was really <laughs> it was a real symbol of the times. Right. And lo and behold, I got calls. This is while you're still in, in while school. I was in college, yeah. Yeah, but I had no patience for, I couldn't wait. I just wanted to start auditioning. And I was, it was the year after rent had opened on Broadway and they were, ex- that show had exploded yeah. and they yeah. were doing tours and all these different companies. And, and they were really into the open call. So that's how I, I got a phone call to audition for rent within like two months of moving to New York. That was your first audition. That was my first audition. And wow. I shockingly got pretty far considering that I should not be in rent, <laughs> but I got pretty far along. And that introduced me to Bernie Telsey, the casting director who would eventually many years later cast me in my first Broadway show, which was Hairspray. So it started a relationship with this office. That's amazing. And it was a very, I mean, it was a slow process, but, and that's the thing whenever like young people ask me about that, nobody wants to hear how long it yeah, takes. You got to put in the time. <laughs> well, it is. Also, Everybody wants it fast. It's just amazing as an aside, because prior to Hamilton, which mm-hmm. we will come to you having been a part sure, of, sure. maybe the biggest thing on Broadway was Book of Mormon. And prior to that, Maybe the biggest thing would have been rent. Yeah, so yeah. you really had a, a toe in, in all of these. It was these, pretty but, crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, I never, I never did rent, but I always thought that I would. Really, right. I was like, oh, I'm going to break into that somehow. But <laughs> yeah. So you leave school after two years, mm-hmm. staying out here though in New York. Yep. And how are you paying the bills? What's oh, going on? Voiceovers. Voiceovers. Which voiceovers. had been something you did even before you came out here, right? Yep. Pam Carter. Once again, she. That children's theater I told you about, Emmy Gifford was the name of the children's theater. We had this very strange opportunity with the help of Susie Buffett, Warren Buffett's daughter. Really? She brought this company called Deke to see a show at the Emmy Gifford and pitched like the Omaha talent as like a good enough pool that they should do an animated, they should record an animated series there. Now I know... It was all non-union, so it was like they were saving a (laughs) buck, and that was a bunch of non-union actors in Nebraska. But they, you know, there was not a a real distinct regional accent there. It was, like, perfect for them. So we started doing – I got cast in a series when I was, like, 15. This is like a Disney. Saturday morning cartoon. It was called Street Sharks. Perhaps you've never heard of it. (laughs) And we did that for a couple years, and then I did – an Archie comic book series for them. I did something called Liberty's Kids. It was on PBS. And those shows, like, I mean, that money is what got me to New York. And then I continued to record them while I was in New York. I mean, that really kept me afloat. And I was also introduced because of that to a company called Four Kids Entertainment that did like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! and all that sort of Japanimation stuff that was popular in the early 2000s. And I worked for them for... Two and a half years. And the way that works is what, just a ISBN line or whatever where you can... Yeah, I mean, it's like ADR technically, so you're like watching the picture and you're trying to sync. It's impossible to do because (laughs) it's written for Japanese and you're trying to make English fit. (laughs) Right. So it always looks terrible, but I did it for a long time. And then when did it start clicking here? You know, you mentioned that you went out for rent, it didn't work, but you were, in addition to the voiceover stuff, doing eventually... Regional theater yeah, and stuff. Occasionally that, doing regional right. theater. I mean, I got beat up a lot. Like I would get close to things and then not get it or, you know, would get so close and then the show wouldn't happen or, you know, like it was a lot of, it was very discouraging. Did it ever get to the point where you're thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm not going back? Never going back. But I, when I was, I did stop auditioning for about two years when I was working at Four Kids and I just, I directed Saturday morning cartoons. Wow. And I did that for two years and then woke up one day and I, I was just, you know, I guess, you know, people call it like a quarter life crisis or whatever. I was like, mm-hmm. I can't keep doing this. Yeah. Like my life is, this is not what I wanted for myself. Mm-hmm. So I dove right back into auditioning and quit my job at four kids. And I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm just going to do it. And it was, it was terrifying. But after months of 
auditioning again, I got, I booked Hairspray on Broadway. Wow. So yeah. that was, this is the part of Lank Larkin. This was Mark <laughs> yes. Shaman. Scott uh, Whitman. The, the one yeah. that cast you guys? Or is that how that? No, because I was a replacement. So, I mean, eventually I did go in for Jack O'Brien and Jerry Mitchell, who directed right. and choreographed the show. But Mar- the creative team had sort of left the building right. at that point. It was three years into the run maybe so but I was a replacement I was in the chorus and then or the ensemble yeah, as they're called yes. now but I was in the chorus and I did that for about a year and then I got to replace the guy I understudied and right. played Link Larkin but let's talk about I mean so the whole dream which probably seemed pretty long shot back yeah. when it was in Nebraska was to get to Broadway yeah. now you're now you're there I mean how much did that change your life on just a on, on every level forget you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, that was my goal. That was my dream. I just I wanted to be in a Broadway show and I wanted to be on stage. And I couldn't believe after years of trying and, and failing that I all of a sudden was here. I was a part of the show that was still a very big hit. And I felt like I had like won the lottery. Yeah. But it is sort of it's the Oprah Winfrey. Now you have to dream a different dream right, situation. Right. So. I kept moving the bar. So at that point it becomes what? You want to be? I wanted to be a lead. The lead. So then I got to be a lead. And then I did it again in Jersey Boys. And then the goal was then to open a show. I never opened a show. So then I got to do that with the Book of Mormon. You know, you keep sort of moving the target to keep it exciting for yourself. I heard the, I believe it was the very first night you're doing Hairspray. (laughs) Curtain comes up. And welcome to Broadway, kid. Like, what happened? This is a technical difficulty. I thought we were singing Good Morning Baltimore. We lined up behind this drop, and then the drop flies up, and we're all the whole, you know, denizens of Baltimore standing there. And I very sweetly closed my eyes (laughs) before the thing went up, and I was, you know, sort of just taking in the moment that I was like, you're on Broadway, and this was it. This is what you wanted. And your dream came true, and here you are on Broadway. And I opened my eyes, and it was still pitch black. And I thought, <laughs> I died. Right. I'm what dead is now. going on here? I yeah. had a stroke. And right. we had to stop the show and start over. And it was the like because the thing just never it just, came the up. The automation just didn't work. So we had to start over. They rebooted the thing, and then it was all fine. But it was a rocky start. Right. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. The first first time out. Mm-hmm. And hairspray for you was 2006, 2005. 2005. I guess. Yeah. So you did that for. A little bit. Then there was a gap, I guess, between when that, as there often is, between that show and then the next time you're yeah. on Broadway, which was as a replacement in Jersey Boys. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, I mean, that took a while because I, I mean, I did a couple regional gigs here and there, and it was looking a little bleak for a second. And then I got what would be the Las Vegas company of Jersey Boys. I didn't end up going to Las Vegas. I ended up going on tour. And then I opened a company in Toronto. And then after, so I was, I mean, I did that show for almost two years. And I finally, the last six months is when I I was on Broadway with it. So, but it was, it was, I loved doing that show and I had never been on tour before. And it was such an exciting show to get to be a part of. And I love that part so much. It's a really Bob Gaudio is, is a great role and Bob Gaudio, the man is, right. is very kind and very generous and like was around a lot. So the whole, that whole experience was just, it was incredible. Well, and you mentioned, so there's obviously major differences between stepping into something that's already a international franchise basically, mm-hmm. and then originating something like Book of Mormon, which would, would come next. But for you, is it just overall, you're just excited to be in something like that or is, does it feel creatively even a little bit constraining because you you can there's only so much that you can add of your own to that kind of a part. Yeah, a little both. I mean, it's there's a, a comfort in knowing what your routine is and knowing what the landscape is before you dive into it. Ultimately, no. Is it is for me? Is it as fulfilling as yeah. creating something from scratch? No. But Jersey Boys is a good example of I opened a comp. I've opened a, a couple companies, yeah. so. I was able to sort of put my stamp on it. But yeah, the framework was pretty tight. Mm -hmm. So while it was fun to sort of learn how to play within the boundaries, by the time I did the Book of Mormon, it was a whole different ballgame to be like, wait, I get to help shape this. I get to, Trey would go away and like write jokes for me. Bobby Lopez was writing songs for me, for my voice. So that was really a whole new experience. 
So let's let's tee this up. I think the New York mm-hmm. Times chief theater critic Ben Brantley called the Book of Mormon, which opened on Broadway in 2011, quote, the best musical of this century, close quote. <laughs> You've called it the greatest thing that ever happened to me, close quote. How did it even first cross your radar? Was it on the basis of Jersey Boy? Somebody saw you in that and said, let's go to this guy? Or what no, was the not meaning? even. It was I was doing a show out of town in Dallas called Lissa Strata Jones that would later come to Broadway, but not with me. Mm-hmm. And the choreographer was this guy named Dan Connectus, and he was doing, he's going to do a workshop of the Book of Mormon, which they were just saying, like, it's a South Park musical. Nobody really knew no. what it was about. No. And I remember asking him, well, is there anything for me in it, maybe? Yeah. Like, and he was like, no, there's really not. There's not a good role for you. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, okay, I guess not. Not knowing. Right. So right. I guess they did a, They did the workshop and that happened and there's grumbling about it, but still nobody really knew too many details. And months later, I was working at the Paper Mill Playhouse and I heard there was going to be an audition. They were replacing the lead mm-hmm. and they were calling people in and no information about it whatsoever, but it was just... Like basically like a, not an open call, but it was just like this very generic casting because we couldn't really do anything from the, from the show. They didn't want that to get out. So I just went in, Jason Moore was directing it. At the, the reason time. though you would want to go in, even though there's, you know, nothing about it. Ex- well, it's is Trey that, Parker, it's Trey Parker and Matt Stone, Stone, Bobby Lopez, who had written Avenue right. Q and Jason Moore was the director at the time who right. was, you know, had directed Avenue Q and. Everybody wanted to work with him. So I went in to sort of blindly not knowing anything about it. I knew that it was to play a Mormon missionary, but that was about it. So I just sang my little song and... Do you remember um, what you what you sang? I sang a song from Jersey Boys actually, which was my go-to for everything. Really? It's called "Cry for Me." Okay. Even if it's inappropriate, I sing it. <laughs> I just always that's my song. Right? And Jason was great, and I th- feel like we cold read a little bit, and then he was like, "I want to have you come back and meet the guys." The guys. Yeah. And I remember they asked me to, there's this little group of us that we, we went to the Jim Carnahan's office, the casting director, and we had to, we sat in a room and read the script like silently, like study hall. We couldn't take it with us and they wouldn't email it. So we had to just like sit and read it. And it was so hilarious and so dark (laughs) and weird. And I was like, I have to get this show. So I went back in for those guys and the whole process was pretty quick. I, I read and I sang for them. Did they ever do anything with you and Josh Gad together? They flew me to Los Angeles and Josh and I, it was the most terrifying audition callback because like I had never really been to Los Angeles, first of all. Okay. I get flown to LA to audition for a musical, which is not a thing that happens. <laughs> so I was feeling very scared, but and fancy. this was because Josh is working out there. Josh was working out there and Trey and Matt are based right, there. So right, it was easier right, for them right. to be, you know, to, for them to all be there. So I flew out there and it was like, I can't tell you the names, but there was like a room full of like celebrity auditioners, which is like all these guys from like bands or right, TV shows. Right. And I was like, what's happening? <laughs> and we were all dressed like Mormons. And I was like, this is the craziest <laughs> thing I've ever done. But I was the last one to go. And I stayed in the room for like two hours getting to know Josh Gad and like hanging out and playing around and just like being stupid. And within like a day I had an offer to do the workshop. And this was, so basically when you say different guys cycling through, they were all going opposite Josh because they had already established Josh was going to Josh play Josh was going to do it. Okay. And I think, you know, as producers are often want to do, they're like, well, what about a celebrity? So they were just like throwing people right. in the mix at the last minute. Oh my God. It's not, not yeah, always the best. Not yeah. always <laughs> the best way. So when you find out you, so you've got the you said originally a workshop, then it, as mm-hmm. it comes along and it's clear that you've got this. Yeah. How early on was it that you realized this is like a big fucking deal? Well, the workshop came together in such a magical way. And I was, you know, everybody was afraid of losing their jobs. We didn't have contracts for Broadway. So I think we all made it as difficult as possible. Right, right, so right. it was like every trick I had at the time, I was like, let's work this into the thing. Right. I mean, <laughs> those songs are, you know, sort of fit well in my voice, but like sort of painfully high, but I was white knuckling that part. I was like, I'm not letting this one go because it was very clear as we started to do it that I was like, Oh, this is going to be really special. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any of us thought it was going to be as widely received as it has been. I mean, it literally still tours the country and is open all over the world. But 
I thought it was like, oh, we're going to find like our audience and this is going to be really special. But it turned out it was a much broader base than I think anybody expected. You're with it for like a year and a half. This is yeah. eight shows a week of doing this. End up with a Tony nomination. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's talking about like how incrementally your your goals change, whatever. This must yeah. have just been it's crazy. kind of surreal, right? And was really wonderful because Josh was nominated, Roy O'Malley was nominated, Nikki James was nominated, the show was nominated. Like it was to go through that process and 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 be with your friends yeah. and feel like because it was scary. It was you know it was very overwhelming. We're still doing the show every night. Right. We were exhausted but thrilled, and it was great to have everybody together. Like we all got to do that together. What I don't understand where the hours in the day are for for something yeah. is when I'm hearing that you and Josh, I guess during the run are still going back to L.A. to do pilots and things. Well, that's a little tricky. Yeah. yeah. So we. I guess it was like at the end of the summer, we both, you know, took our vacations and made our trips to Los Angeles to do what Lena Dunham later told me is the water bottle tour of L.A., (laughs) where you just have, you know, 40 generals in a week. And you end up in a rental car with just like cans of Diet Coke and bottles of (laughs) water. With the goal, ultimately, of getting a job. Yes. But a job meaning you were talking about films or particularly pilots for TV shows. I was sort of just meeting everybody. I had never been out there, so I was just meeting all the folk. Right. And at this point, I had already shot the first season of Girls, which I did while still in the Book of Mormon, which was amazing. Um, and they were very, you know, worked around my very limited schedule. I, so I'd shot that. Nobody had seen it yet. Nobody really knew what girls was going to be. So it was kind of a good time to introduce myself to some new people because I had the book of Mormon and then also this mysterious TV show with this like, at the time, magical people weren't even genius. calling it Alina. It was no. like Judd Apatow's show. The Judd right? Apatow pilot. Yeah, right. exactly. And nobody, But people knew that she was like right. some sort of mad genius. Right, right, right. So, yeah, it was a crazy. So I ended up going out and I met like everybody in their mother. Man. Right. And one of my last meetings was Ryan Murphy. And I was terrified, but I was like, I have to meet him. Mm-hmm. I want to meet him. And so, yeah, I got to sit down with him and I had heard like a rumor that he had a TV show that NBC was maybe going to buy about a gay couple having a baby with a surrogate. (laughs) And once again, not knowing anything, but just like weirdly having this moment of blind confidence, I I was like, I want to play that part. (laughs) Of one of the 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 guys. guys. No script, no script. But I was like, I just, I want to tell that story on television. I want to tell it with you. And he was so... (laughs) either charmed or horrified (laughs) and (laughs) but it did end up I did end up getting to do it but Josh and I so that was at the same time he got a show on NBC I got a show on NBC we both left we took leaves for like two weeks from the Book of Mormon shot our pilots came back continued to do the show the pilots both got picked up so we left this at the same time to move to LA and start these shows amazing and and so I think we do have to go back to address how girls itself came about because yeah. it's amazing. It's another direct outgrowth of Book, Book of, of Mormon. Mormon. Yeah, they, Lena and Jenny Connor came to opening night of the Book of Mormon. They had shot the pilot of Girls. They had just they got their pickup. They were just about to start filming the the first season. And a couple weeks later, I got a phone call about coming in and reading for this new TV show. They sent me Tiny Furniture, which was incredible, and I immediately loved it. I was like, whatever this is, I want to do it <laughs> because this girl seems amazing. Right. So I went in and met Lena. And we'd be, it was it was an odd audition because I did read, but then we ended up just like improvising a bunch of different scenarios with these two people, you know, reconnecting after years of not seeing each other. And it was just Lena and I sort of getting to know each other and, and improvising. And I, you know, for me, the stakes were pretty low because I had never done anything on television. And so I was like, well, I guess let's just see what happens. And then it, they called and said, would you like to come join us? You're on. Yeah. Yeah. And initially for those first, I think three seasons, it was this part of Elijah was, was a guest yeah, considered a guest role, but I was always pretty, you know, popular with with viewers, and so mm. I wonder is that the explanation that you understand for why starting with the fourth season he was now regular is just by popular demand essentially. Well, the they had very generously asked me to join 
the cast as a regular in the second season, oh. but it happened to be the same time that Ryan Murphy, New Normal, did, yeah. we were doing the New Normal. So I had to make a very difficult decision as to what I was going to do, which is, I was, you know, very lucky to be mm-hmm. in that position. Mm-hmm. But when you have, you know, Ryan Murphy calling you and Judd Apatow calling you, right. and you have to like, <laughs> you have to be the one to, you know, make the call. Right. It was tough. It was a tough decision to make, but I felt like I wanted to see what, the story was yeah. I wanted to try this, you know, working with Ryan. And so we had shot the beginning of the second season. I made my exit, I think in episode four, right? We shot 22 episodes of the new normal in Los Angeles. It was then canceled. Lena Dunham called me the same day and said, do you want to come back and do the third season of girls? I came back and I think like midway through that season, right. episode like seven or something, came back like I had never left. Right. They were very kind to me. Right. And then they asked me to stay. With Girls, even before you went off and did The New Normal, were you kind of surprised or had you expected to see how how quickly and how much the show took off? I mean, it was like a phenomenon very quickly. Yeah, it was pretty nuts. I mean, I was in... I was filming The New Normal in L.A., and it just all of a sudden, like, as soon as it started airing, people were like, what is this? Like, right. what is the?" It didn't look like anything right. else. It didn't sound like anything no. else. Nobody knew who we were. I mean, with the exception of Zasha. I mean, Zasha had been working on television for a while, right. but nobody else had. So it was a whole new weird group of people, and I think people really... Yeah. And your big intro, I guess, was just to remind people, you guys break up, you reveal to Hannah, Lena's character, that you're gay. Well, she, yes. Or she, she, she initially wants to meet with me because she thinks that I gave her HPV. HPV. <laughs> so she's confronting me about that. I think she's confronting me about being gay. Right. So not only, so we're both surprised. And you have a, uh, a nice kicker. Well, yes, my brilliant and not so subtle improv. Your dad is gay. <laughs> Judd Apatow that day on uh, that first day on set was was there, and he was telling us just like different, you know, just whispering to us like different ways to sort of take the scene. And he asked me, he was like, "Do you know Peter Scolari?" And I said, "I I, I did know who that was." Right. And, and uh, he was like, "Well, he's playing her father. Right. Try to work in that he's gay." <laughs> If you can. Because he actually, because Judd saw him as gay or because he just thought this would be a snide comment that your guy could make? A little of both. Because, I mean, you know, Peter's character didn't come out for many seasons. But I think that they had always kind of thought something was. Right, right. So, yes, so that was my my brilliant (laughs) improv was just saying, your dad is gay. So I imagine that would be the thing that was probably quoted back to you when people before they knew really who you were. Yeah. That your dad's gay, right? Yeah, yeah. I was (laughs) living in the East Village and I would get a lot of people just shouting at me, your dad is gay. (laughs) (laughs) So the other thing, though, that I know you've said and it it rings true to me is that your character, even though, you know, objectively he's, for those early years, was a guest character, mm-hmm. he sort of was, in his own mind, the center of this universe. And for the audience, was the voice that they, he was their voice in the sense that he would just say what probably many viewers were thinking about these girls, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a, it's a, was a very special role to get to fill <laughs> that I got to sort of call them out on all of their nonsense. Or slap them. Or slap <laughs> them. Or, yeah, it was, it was, yeah. Which was great. Right. It was, it was, I mean, I knew the show was called Girls, so I, I didn't have any expectation that my role was going to be any larger than it was. And it was, you know, Lena's generosity to all of us, you know, right. figuring out different ways to tell these different stories with these characters was, was really great. So you, so you mentioned with that line in the, in the HPV back and forth huh. that you basically, you know, you created that line about your dad's gay. Yeah. How often though was that the case where there was, I mean, we, we know Lena's a great writer. We know yeah. there's a lot of, you know, basically this is largely, I think entirely you, you get a script, but then how much freedom is there or was there to, deviate from that? How, how would that work? The scripts are all so solid and really incredible. We have the the luxury also of having the writers on set with us. So there's always punch-ups, there's always alternates, there's always ideas that are coming from them to sort of tighten and, and change. It's a very, it was a very collaborative process. And then within certain episodes or certain scenes, particularly if it's a smaller scene, like if it's just Lena and I, which most of my 
material. It was just the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of leeway to kind of mess around a little bit. And I think over time I got better at it. And they, I also knew when it was warranted and when it wasn't. Cause I think that's the slippery thing about improv is that there's the knee jerk just to do it right. sometimes, right. which doesn't always help because you can right. take it, you know, you can really get off track very easily. And the goal has to always be what is the story I'm telling? What is the, what are we doing? Right. I mean, it's, it's easy to change like little things, but like once you, once you start pulling threads, it right. can, you can Kinda really get off apart. track. Right. Yeah. So as a gay man playing a gay character on a show though, where there weren't to the best of my knowledge, that many other gay people mm. as part of the creative team. Yeah. There, I, I know that in some ways that can be hazardous, right? Because yeah. in there were, from what I understand, there were particularly with sex scenes, one with a girl, one with a boy, mm-hmm. there, there were things that, had to be revised because somebody's saying, look, we got to think about this a little differently, right? Well, I mean, y- yes. I mean, there's some some technical issues, <laughs> some blocking, some choreography, yes. <laughs> with the, if you this will. Is with the latter of those. Yes, yes. So in season five with Corey Stoll, you know, there was a sex scene. Generally, the sex scenes in that show are written sort of broadly, and mm-hmm. then it's, you know, discussed in detail when you're doing it. So right. it's not too specific on the page. (laughs) So yeah, so I felt like I was the gay tutor on set that day and sort of explained the... (laughs) The ins and outs. Yes, the ins and outs, if you will, of how best we should do that. And to Corey's credit and our director of that episode, Jesse Peretz, who they listened to me and they... Yeah. (laughs) And so that was just a, I guess on a less literal level or whatever, there's a scene where Elijah and Marnie, Allison Williams' Uh character, are getting together. And that was eventually aired in a different way than it was originally suggested, right? I mean, it was always presented that we would stop in the middle, that I would, that Elijah would lose his erection and that that was going to be the end of that. It, it, when we were doing it, it took sort of a meaner turn. I think that I think the embarrassment of the situation, I think for Allison and I, or for, for Marnie and Elijah, I yes. think came out in a different way than we were expecting. Because that's a pretty, I mean, that's an embarrassing moment for both parties. So (laughs) I think that we felt that. And also, Allison and I hadn't done, as actors, we hadn't done a ton of sex scenes, you know? So you're also vulnerable in that sense that I'd never been naked on TV before. And here I was, like, being a Mormon at night and shooting the sex scene (laughs) during the day. It was very strange. No, well, the thing, though, that, and and maybe this is... Maybe I'm somehow misunderstanding, but I had thought there was also a thing there where the guy who was running HBO, Michael Lombardo, uh-huh. who also happens to be a gay man, uh-huh. had looked at that and said, that's why that erection should not be there. Not because because otherwise, why are we suggesting that a gay man would be pursuing this in the first place with Marnie? There was a conversation about that. You're right. But I think that was more, it was a clarification for Mike of why that might happen. I think he was thinking about it in terms of a little more black and white, like, well, if he's gay, he wouldn't do that with a girl. Whereas I think what we argued was that he was sort of newly out, had had sex with women, was still sort of confused about where he, his sexuality right lay. And I think that's a phase that a lot of gay men go through is that the temporarily I'm by thing, which, right. you know, I think a, a lot of gay men go through that. So I think that's where we were placing Elijah in that moment was that he was sort of struck like, well, maybe I could still give this a shot and right. see and, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so by 2014 and 2015, while, while you guys were, while you were still shooting girls during the day. Mm-hmm. You were now back at the theater, having moved on from Book of Mormon, but now replacing in back-to-back shows that are among the the most popular that have ever happened on Broadway. Let's just remind people. So replacing Neil Patrick Harris as the title character in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and then replacing Jonathan Groff, who had replaced Brian Darcy James Mm -hmm. as King George III in Hamilton. Did you come back to the theater, even though your life was, was getting very busy because of those particular roles or because you just wanted to continue to be in the theater? I wanted to continue to be in the theater. And I, I mean, those roles are incredible. I was always looking for something to do because I mean, while girls was a very grueling filming schedule, we also had several months off during the year. So you're always looking for something to put in that pocket. Um, 
Hedwig came along and that was just too good to be true. I had done it regionally in 2002 and I just, I loved playing that part so much that to get the idea to get to do it on Broadway with all of those bells and whistles that come with it was really incredible. So I couldn't not do it. Was it still Lena Hall when you Lena Hall, oh, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and, and that was, you know, I, I look back on that time as it was very stressful as I was doing it, but it was, it's, a, I mean, I'm, it's an embarrassment of riches that I was filming girls. I was filming this movie, The Intern, that Nancy Myers right. wrote and directed, and then also rehearsing Hedwig. Which so, is probably about the most physical part yeah. of an, in all of musical theater. Yeah, it's pretty, it was pretty nuts. But I couldn't have been happier. I mean, I think I was pissing off everybody <laughs> because of my scheduling right. conflicts. But I was thrilled. I mean, right. that's all I ever dreamed of, of doing. And here I got to do all of these things at the same time and work with those, you know, Amazing people, yeah. amazing people, and and then Hamilton, like just is that Hamilton daunting? was a total fluke. Right. It was I got a call from Lynn saying who I was friendly with but didn't know super well. Right. Like Jonathan Groff is is um, going to be leaving for five weeks to film the finale of Looking. Looking, yeah. Do you want to come in and do this part? And I had been on a wait list for house seats. <laughs> I hadn't seen it yet. I was working a lot during the summer, so I didn't get to see it at the public. I was going to wait till it transferred. I could not, could not get house get seats. In, yeah. So I remember asking my agent, I was like, so does this mean I can see it now? <laughs> can I, yeah, if we'll, I do we'll it, can I get you, tickets? Right? <laughs> yeah. So that was my, so I just got to drop into that show for five weeks, which was insane. Right. Because it was shortly after they opened. Um, as the recording was coming out, I mean, it was just the craziest time to be there. And when the show is already that massive and you're you're coming into it, I mean, I know to some extent you're coming into Jersey Boys was already a huge thing. Yeah. But coming into this where it's, as you say, still on the ascent and it's like yeah, going yeah. places where no show has ever gone. Yeah. Does that make your job feel more or less stressful? Because you know that it's on the one hand, these expectations are so great. On the other hand, it's like... It's so well built. Yeah. No, I, I did not feel any responsibility. I mean, I was a temp, basically. <laughs> so I didn't feel like right. anything I did was going to like ruin the right, show. Right. And it was all on Lynn. Right. I mean, it was all that whole show was on Lynn's shoulders. So I just got to sort of like pop in and I think annoy everybody. And with that's it. really what it is in the show itself, right? Yeah. You're popping in every so yeah. often with the comic relief. It's such and a then likeable. That's it. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's nine minutes total, all combined. <laughs> yeah. Stressful in a weird way to have to do that, to like appear out of nowhere. Right. Completely change the tone of the show, sing a song that By yourself, doesn't sound honestly, like anything right. else. Yeah. I wasn't fully prepared for that, how strange that was going to feel. But it was strange. And all the while here, again, Girls is still Still on and off in the background. So now, I guess, post-Hamilton, post that that brief experience, you go back and you're winding down Girls with Mm -hmm. everybody. How far ahead did you know how how your storyline and the overall story was going to resolve itself? They start the writer's room in Los Angeles, usually in like January. Mm -hmm. So I remember going in probably like mid January Mm -hmm. and like talking through what they thought Elijah was going to be doing. Mm -hmm. They said they had this idea that he was going to, you know, try to get into musical theater. So we spent a lot of time talking about my early audition experiences and, and, you know, what that's like and what that looks like and what that feels like. And so I worked with all of the Bruce Kaplan and, and Tammy Sager and Marie Miller. Like we talked through a lot of details and then that script, you know, as girls as often does, we sort of have these little bottle episodes and it was not exactly a bottle episode, but it was sort of the most we have seen of Elijah. So it was um, exciting to see yeah. that come together and that I got to use some of my musical theater tricks yeah. was great. And that whole experience was just so surreal because Marissa Jarrett Winoker, who I had done Hairspray with, was playing the casting director. Mark Shaman came yes. to hear me sing Let Me Be Your Star right. from Smash. <laughs> I was already, you know, had done some work with Christian Borel on Falsettos, right. who was in Smash. Right. <laughs> so it oh just kept getting, like, weirder and weirder, yeah. but I loved every second of it. And can you 
share anything about you, you, you go out of the show with a bang with yeah. a very kind of funny kiss off to the girls. Yeah, she really knows how to write them. Um, <laughs> my final line was eat a dick. That's my final words. After telling them, though, that yes. you're, you, uh, you are going to be in White Men Can Jump the Musical, yeah. you feckless whores. You feckless whores. <laughs> yeah. So that was a, that's it's a nice way special. to go out. Yeah. Yeah, that was a crazy, crazy episode. And meanwhile, as you, as you referenced, you. I guess already we're now starting to be involved with falsettos or that was like right after? No, it was during. I, you know, I, I look at a calendar and then I just sort of throw it out because I thought, okay, I can make, we can make right. this work. We can make it work. Like it's going to be fine. And of right. course it, it ultimately was fine, but it was very difficult to try to be in rehearsals and finish up that season. But Falsettos came about a couple years before I had worked with James Lapine on a musical version of Little Miss Sunshine. Mm -hmm. I was in the ensemble of this show. It was before the Book of Mormon. Christian Borle was also in it. I wanted to do Falsettos very badly. Because of that early Just exposure. because of my exposure yeah. to it. Um, as the years went by and I sort of got a little more visibility mm -hmm. and people would ask, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Right. And I would always say, I want to do falsettos. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that Jordan Roth also wanted to do falsettos. Mm -hmm. He had been talking to James Lapine about it. So it all, he, I got, you know, got a call one day that they wanted to do this revival that they were offering these roles to Christian Borle and I, and would we consider doing this on Broadway? And I, <laughs> lost my mind. I was like, what's happening? Right, right. So obviously I was going to do anything I could to make that work. And, you know, Jenny and, and Jenny Connor and Lena Dunham's generosity was, did not go, should not go unnoticed. Just because, scheduling. Yes, it was yeah. scheduling. And so we were able to work it all out, but that was just, it was, you know, a dream come true to get to do that show. 25 years earlier when the original was opening on Broadway, mm -hmm. the the world was a different place in a lot of ways than it is when, when you guys opened this yeah. revival. Obviously, at, at the time, as you referenced, there people were in the thick of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Now we know that people can live long lives with, with HIV. We, you know, there, were, there was a slew of homophobia at the time of the original that obviously hasn't entirely gone away but i mm -hmm. think with gay marriage various things it's it's getting better how does that change the experience or the, even the way you guys approach it knowing that the the and and for the audience just how does how does the time change you're now looking at what's essentially a period piece right yeah well it's interesting because i think when james and and william finn wrote it I think, you know, they wrote it in two sections. So the right. first act was written and then, you know, 10 or 12 years later, the second act was mm -hmm. written. So they were dealing with very different things going on in the world. So I think the initial hurdle in the original production was getting over the fact that the lead character is gay and leaves his wife and child for another man. Like that in itself was the hurdle. Right. So everything after that sort of is seen through that filter of like, oh my God, it's so crazy that right. he's gay. And right. look at the, so I think that was right. initially when it was performed, that was the, the thing. Now the second act, they introduced, you know, some more characters and then also wizard contracts HIV yeah. and then ends up dying of AIDS, right. which was something that was happening and was topical and Bill and James wanted to talk about. So, but now, as you said, because of, you know, the amazing advances that have been made medically, I think it was a surprise to a lot of people that it was happening, mm -hmm. that it happened. And then that's when it sort of hit them. They're like, oh, th this is it, this is from a different right. time period. Right. So it was interesting to watch people receive that information because different things were surprising. Right. I think then other things got to sort of stand. I think the, the romance aspect of it between Wizard and Marvin, I think, got to be clarified mm -hmm. because we got to sort of be a little more truthful mm -hmm. about our physical relationship mm -hmm. and the way that Christian and I interacted with each other. Stephanie Block's character, Trina, I think that popped way more because you didn't have to get over the hurdle of the gay thing. So right. Steph, all Stephanie's amazing breakdown that she has right. throughout the course of that show is, I think, landed in a different way because she right. got to see her a little more clearly. So the show obviously has now been gone, I guess, since January, but it must have felt pretty nice when earlier this month... Christian, Stephanie, and yourself for the second time yeah. get this. Uh, and Brandon Uranowitz. And Brandon Uranowitz, yeah. right. Tony nominations. I mean, it's often the case that shows that are gone are kind of forgotten, right? Yeah. So it, it, I guess, does that, in a way, say to you, like, look, this, 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 it made its impact, made it that. I mean, I, we were all 
I don't think anybody was thinking that it would be remembered so well. Yeah. yeah, we were very, very lucky. And the show being nominated for Best Revival, I mean, it's... I think we were cautiously optimistic that maybe we would get that nomination, but right. I don't... The four of us did not expect nominations for this. Right. So it's really overwhelming that we all get to be there together. And, and you know, for all we know, I, I don't know if you guys have any plans to perform the number on, on the Tonys, but that would be we pretty are full circle. performing a number. I can't tell you which one, but right. we are. I'm so happy. Because, again, when a show closes, you don't always get to perform. No, they want to promote the current exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So, but they're giving us a, a slot to perform. So I'm I'm so excited about it. I, I am, yeah, I'm just, I can't, I can't believe that we're doing it so and i think that night will be very little andrew Reynolds somewhere that's watching some little trial right? well we also got you know the being from nebraska not having a lot of access to broadway the great performances in live from lincoln center series yeah. on pbs was such a huge influence on me right. and we got to film falsettos for live at lincoln yes. center so it's great it's a great feeling to know that that is going to be available to young people Preserved, old people yeah. yeah who who don't have access to it so yeah that that's a it's a the whole experience from top to bottom was was very magical so i guess just as a final question i mean it's it's a pretty interesting moment for you you've you've come through this girl's experience you've as we've just established the whole full circle thing with falsettos and broadway yeah at this point if we were to you know so that 20 years from now we can refer back to okay. whatever the state what is your outlook what is your what what are the unfulfilled ambitions that are still out there you've said the the goalpost moves with time yeah. where is it right now well i you know i've gotten the opportunity to work with some really amazing writers and producers and what i'm have learned from them and what i've witnessed is you know cre- i think the next step for me is creating mm-hmm. art and creating stories and telling stories so I think that's going to be my new goal is, is, you know, not that I've ever felt like I was passive in, in my career, right. but the way that Lena works, the way that Nancy Myers works, the way that Trey and Matt work, like they create their own material yeah. and their own content and then they decide what stories they want to tell. And I think that's what I'm most excited about moving forward. And even working with, with James and with Bill, you know, the, the, world that they created with falsettos was just something that they, they that's a completely original story that they just like created these right. weird characters and it's so exciting to see that come together so awesome yeah i think that's where i'm headed love your stuff i so appreciate you doing thanks this. so and, much for uh, having yeah, me thank you, thank you. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.